Good morning, beloved, and happy Mother's Day to our mothers. Uh, it's good to see you. Uh, did anyone happen to catch the viral video this week in South Africa of an armored truck being attacked? I saw, I saw a head nod. Thank you. Somebody is there with me. So um, while I tell you about this, because you really need to know about this, we are going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 9. If you want to make your copy of Scripture ready, if you want to follow along with us, um, Reggie just read through that for us, but we'll be kind of focusing in on part of that. Um, but this week, a viral video um, was capturing moments where in South Africa, there's a Toyota Tacoma-like van type thing that was converted into an armored car, and it's a dash cam. And so you're just seeing the driver and his partner. And the driver um, is just sitting there, and, and I'm not being mean, but he looks like a middle school math teacher. Like, he's got his glasses on, and he's just kind of, he looks like the kind of guy who goes home and reads, like, super techie bulletins that get released on the obscure another region of the internet. And like, that's just what he looks like. And he's sitting there and his partner's sitting there who looks quite a bit younger than him. And as they're driving, this looks like the most awkward kind of like coworker situation ever to where they're just driving along. And like, at times they'll like, kind of one of them will look over like he's gonna say something and the other one kind of looks away and then he looks back over. And it's just like this weird thing. Like they're just riding in silence. You're like, is every day like that for them? <laughs> like, like, become friends or something, like talk to each other. And so, when you feel like the awkwardness just can't get any worse, all of a sudden you see the driver, a super nerdy looking guy, he's all of a sudden kind of like looking in his mirrors a lot, and then all of a sudden like you see him kind of get ready and he says something, and, and just so you know, don't watch this in front of kids because there's some language and stuff, maybe turn the volume off if, if you decide you wanna watch it, but all of a sudden like it becomes obvious somebody is flying up on them and then all of a sudden bullets are hitting his, like it's the bulletproof glass, so it's just like making that huge spiderweb stuff and everything, and he's like, oh, and everything, and they're swerving and all this stuff. You see another uh, white Ford pickup truck come sideswipe them, and they're like, bullets are hitting both sides, and so the guy driving is just incredible. Like, he is unfazed, and he's just going to town, shifting gears, and doing all this stuff. And he's telling the guy next to him, he's like, get your gun. And he pulls out his little pistol. He's like, no, get the gun. And he pulls out this big rifle, but he forgets to actually chamber a bullet for a while. And like, you can see this guy, his eyes are as big as saucers. But the guy driving is just like, he was made for this moment. And it's incredible. Like, he, he goes and, like, they're going off-road and all this stuff. And then finally, like, he has enough. And so he stops the vehicle, takes the rifle from the other guy, and gets out to just go take care of business. You're like, who is this man? Like, <laughs> nobody signs up to be an armored truck driver thinking they'll ever do something like that. And I would so not expect that of that guy. I just didn't think he'd be that crazy awesome, to be honest with you. Um, but isn't that so true for all of us? Uh, if we're honest, and maybe some of you are much more mature than I am, but I know that I am very quick to make assumptions about people. Happy Mother's Day. Any moms? <laughs> any moms feel like people are quick to decide what kind of mother you are? Like, you make this decision, or you don't make this decision. Like, whatever it is, like, there's just so many things, and it's not just in motherhood, but it's all of life, that people can be so quick to decide who you are. And, like, that hurts, Right? But then we do that to other people. We're just so quick to make assumptions about people. And, and I want us to dive into that today as we look at this, this unfolding story of 1 Samuel 9. To give you context, if you were not here last week, we, we launched into this series calling it A Seat at the Table. 
And we want to talk about peace and hospitality because Jesus called us to be peacemakers and he said, blessed are the peacemakers. And so we are commanded to make peace. We are commanded to be hospitable, to pursue these things. And so we want to look at what that really looks like. And we're doing that this summer by going through kind of the story of David and some of the key characters in his life. Um, So namely Saul and then later Jonathan. Um, But right now where we're at, the Israelites, this nation that God has called out God has called them out, said, you're going to be different than all the other nations. You're going to be mine. He's entered this covenant relationship with them. He gives them the law and all this stuff. This is how you're going to relate to each other. You're going to relate to me. This is how you'll show the world who I am. Like, well, that's pretty beautiful because remember, we were originally made in whose image? God's. And so all of humanity is supposed to be imaging God, showing the world who God is in the way that we act, the way that we express ourselves, the way that we take dominion of things, we let culture flourish, and all of what we do is supposed to be expressing this is who God is. And so that has been derailed because of sin that we've rebelled against God, and so now God has brought this family together and says, I'm going to make a nation of you, and you're going to bless all the nations, and kind of calling you back to like express who I am, show the world who I am. And so that is this nation. And so last week we talked about how they come to a point where like, you know, we actually want to be like all the other nations. We want to have a king. And God's like, no, well, you're rejecting me as king is what you're doing. But have it your way. Just know it's going to hurt because they're going to be able to tax you. They're going to make you fight their wars, all this stuff. Like, it's not going to be so awesome. And so, like, nope, that's what we want. We want a king. And so today we pick up with where we're finding out who is going to be the first king. Who does God say is going to be the first king? So we are in 1 Samuel chapter 9. They've rejected God as king. God is going to provide them a king because he wants to deliver them from the Philistines. And so if we look in the first two verses, 1 Samuel chapter 9, starting in verse 1, I want to focus in on this. It says, there was a prominent man, so prominent man of Benjamin named Kish, son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bechorath, son of Ephiah, son of a Benjaminite. He had a son named Saul, an impressive young man. There was no one more impressive among the Israelites than he. He stood a head taller than anyone else. So this reference to Saul's dad as a prominent man of Benjamin, the fact that they own some donkeys, as you heard the story explained as Reggie was reading it, that some donkeys go missing. So they own donkeys. There's an impressive man. There's donkeys that they own that have left, And they have a servant that goes with Saul. All of that tells us this is a pretty affluent family. Even if they are from the smallest tribe, Benjamin is the smallest of the 12 tribes of Israel, and the smallest clan within that tribe. And yet, this family has some wealth. They have some influence. They are affluent. And Saul himself says, was more impressive than any other, standing a head taller than anyone else. Standing a head taller than anyone else. Have you ever heard the expression, you're getting sized up? Like you walk in the room and you're sizing everyone up? Just that idea of sizing people up. Where does that come from? What what is it about the size of people that is some way going to indicate for us kind of where we fall in the pecking order? But we we all feel it. There's something about the physical stature of someone that has an effect on people as we make an assessment of them. And this is why, in kind of folk wisdom, the height of presidents is a huge deal. In our country, um, the vast majority of the time, the taller candidate in any presidential race is going to win. Overwhelmingly, you can look at the data. The taller candidate typically will win. 
In fact, of the 46 presidents of the United States, only six have been below what the historic average height of males has been in this country. Only six out of 46. There's something to that. Uh, the American Psychological Association reported in a study, the findings suggest that someone who is six feet tall earns on average nearly $166,000 more during a 30-year career than someone who is five feet five inches, even when controlling for gender, age, and weight. Uh, psychologist Dr. Timothy Judge offered the possible explanation. He said, the process of literally looking down on others may cause one to be more confident Similarly, having others looking up to us may instill in tall people more self-confidence. And so the article concludes, tall people may have greater self-esteem and social confidence than shorter people. In turn, others may view tall people as more leader-like and authoritative. And I can tell you, like, even as a pastor, when I go into rooms with a bunch of pastors meeting together, I am typically the shortest person in the room. <laughs> I, it's true. It's true. And like that's, that's, in, that's in religious, spiritual settings where like leadership for the church even falls prey to this. That we just typically will esteem and assume someone who is larger is more capable of leadership. And it's pretty crazy. But is that not what happened here? Saul is more impressive than anyone else in Israel. He stood a head taller. Like, could you imagine every room you go into, you look around and you're looking down at the top of everyone else's head. And does that give you just a sense of authority and, and just power, this, this kind of ability that who cares what your real leadership ability is? They look up to you, literally. And so now we do in every way. And so Saul is to be anointed king. And this makes sense to us, right? From like thinking about all that stuff and just on our own lives, like it makes sense that this is who God would choose to be king. Saul, like look at him, he's impressive. He stands a head taller than everyone else. And so like, okay, God, like your decision is making sense because it's kind of aligned with our decision making. Like if we take everybody in the country, like look, that dude, he's big. Like <laughs> we all look up to him, it's like make him king. He's impressive. Like his family, like they've got money, he, he's like, he's a clear shoe in. Like, let's go with this guy. Okay, God, makes sense. But then God flips the script on us. Like, no, 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 no. That's not why I choose him. Because you know what happens when God chooses the next king? Because, kind of spoiler alert, but we're gonna watch, Saul totally blows it. Saul fails miserably. And God regrets making him king. There's another king who's to be anointed. And so when we look at the next king being anointed, if you'll flip over a couple pages to chapter 16, 1 Samuel chapter 16, this is when the next king is anointed. And we start in chapter 16, verse one. The Lord said to Samuel, how long are you going to mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Because at this point, we've seen the failure of Saul already starting to become very evident and so Samuel is the prophet who anointed Saul as king. And so Samuel is being addressed by God. How long are you going to mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem because I have selected a king from his sons. Samuel asked, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. So if you want a quick window into the life of Paul or Saul, how like crazy he's already gotten, the prophet, the seer, 
the one who God communicates through to the nation, who anointed Saul as king originally, is now like, look, that dude's crazy. If I take off with a flask of oil and go anywhere, like, he's watching me. He wants to know what I'm doing. Like, he's gonna see this as treason. How in the world am I supposed to go anoint another king? He's gonna kill me, God. So the Lord answered, take a young cow with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will let you know what you are to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate to you. Samuel did what the Lord directed and went to Bethlehem. When the elders of the town met him, they trembled and asked, do you come in peace? Like, what? <laughs> the prophet shows up with a cow. He's got a heifer here and he shows up in town and that's kind of his, his cloak. Like that's, that's his guise for why he's gonna go here. And, and now the elders of the town, like the leaders of the town, they're like, they're trembling, they're afraid. Have you come in peace? Like what, what's the threat in a guy showing up with a cow? Um, if you look back in Mosaic Law, um, what happens here is the man of God would come and what would happen is if somebody was murdered and it's an unsolved murder, we don't know who to charge with this murder, then they would come and they're actually to break the neck of the cow at the stream in this area and they're to wash their hands and basically say like, none of the guilt of whoever the murderer is should fall on us, God. And so for this prophet to show up with a cow, the elders are like, oh snap, somebody's dead. <laughs> we don't know who the killer is. Have you come in peace? Uh, in peace, he replied, verse five. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab, this is the oldest, and said, certainly the Lord's, the Lord's anointing one is here before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his stature because I have rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees, for humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. Jesse called Abinadad, presented him to Samuel. The Lord hasn't chosen this one either, Samuel said. Then Jesse presented Shema, but Samuel said, the Lord hasn't chosen this one either. After Jesse presented seven of his sons to him, Samuel told Jesse, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. Samuel asked him, are these all the sons you have? Uh, there's still the youngest, he answered. But right now, he's tending the sheep. Like, the youngest is so unassuming that dad, who's told to bring all of his sons, eh, and uh, just leave him behind. Leave, you take care of the sheep, boy. <laughs> surely, surely you're not, you're not of any importance here. So the, the prophet's here. He wants to see all you guys. Well, not him. Don't even worry about bringing him. Samuel told Jesse, send for him. We won't sit down to eat until he gets here. So Jesse sent for him. He had beautiful eyes and a healthy, handsome appearance. Then the Lord said, anoint him, for he is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers, because that doesn't create any attention, right? <laughs> and the spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that day forward. Then Samuel set out and went to Ramah. Look at verse seven. And all of our assumptions... And then the prophet of God showing up, making yet another assumption, look at this guy, look at his oldest, it's gotta be the one. And God's like, no. Verse seven, do not look at his appearance or his stature because I've rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees, for humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. And you just need to hear that. 
that God is not looking at all of the insanity of what you see in your life. He sees your heart. He looks beyond what is impressive or not impressive and he sees your heart. And he's trying to teach his prophet. Like, it made sense to you when I chose Saul because he was physically impressive. Now watch this. That's not how I operate. I see the heart. And I see a man who I'm going to say is a man after my own heart. That's the one I want. Anoint him. Anoint this one. As we encounter these records of Saul and David, we're going to see just how different they are in so many ways. And, and it's really the difference in their hearts that God saw then. Uh, Saul is often found hiding. Um, if, if you fast forward to when Saul is actually brought before Israel and he's like publicly declared to be king. And so they bring together the tribes and the clans and they're trying to like pinpoint who it is and it comes down to Saul. And you know where Saul is? He's hiding among the supplies. He's hiding. The most impressive man in the nation is hiding, scared. And, and you can even argue, what was he doing when he encountered Samuel the prophet? He's supposed to be going to get the donkeys who have been lost. His father has lost some things that are treasured. They're treasured, they're cherished by him. And he has gone after them and he gives up. And for fear, he comes back empty-handed. And you contrast that with David. Saul, who when he is king, you know David and Goliath, we're gonna get there when the kids come in, it's gonna be so exciting. But David and Goliath, you know where Saul is as king? He's hiding in his tent. The one who's most impressive in the nation, hiding in his tent. And then you see David, little David comes up. I'll fight. I'll fight. Little David, who when Saul leaves the donkeys, ah, dad's gonna be worried about us, we better get home. David's the one who goes down into a pit and fights a lion and a bear and wins because he's not going to let any of the sheep die. David's the one who shows up with David and Goliath and he's like, yeah, little me, I'm going. I don't even want your armor. That's really clumsy. It's weird. Do you see how different these men are? But you would never catch that based on what they appear to be. It's what's in their heart. What's in their heart comes out and God saw that. And so here's the thing. We have got to see everyone, every person we see, we must first see as made in the image of God. Look beyond the outward appearance. Look at their heart to the very best of our ability. And that starts with realizing no matter what I see, because I can only see the outward appearance, I have to know that person is made in the image of God. So you want to be hospitable? You want to see peace? It's gonna start with the way that you see people. Can you see them first and foremost as made in the image of God? No matter how much they're on the opposite end of the political spectrum or whatever it is, how different their status is in society, see them as an individual made in the image of God. And that's our best, best first step at seeing them the way that God sees them, who sees the heart and not the outward appearance. And do you see this in the gospel? When Isaiah prophesied about Jesus, hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus the Christ. He foretold this. He said, who has believed what we have heard and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. This is Jesus. You would think like if you were in a room 2,000 years ago 
and Jesus was in the room, and you're looking around, and you're like, I gotta find Jesus, you wouldn't have found him. Just based on appearance, he would have been one of the people that you've totally overlooked because he had no form or appearance that we should desire him. There's nothing physically impressive about him, and yet this is the true God-man fully God and fully man, the Son of God taken on humanity, taken on human flesh to be the perfect, obedient sacrifice for us so that we could be restored and forgiven, brought back into a relationship with God the Father. And he was not impressive looking. In 1 Corinthians chapter one, Paul writes this in the 27th verse. He says, instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something so that no one may boast in his presence. We must look past what is outward. The way we see others should not be from above them. We have to view people with humility. With humility, we need to first see them as made in the image of God and the gospel, the good news that none of us deserve God's love, but in grace, he freely gives it. He has come to forgive us, to take the weight of our sin, all of our shame, all of our guilt on himself, to die with that being nailed to the cross so we would be freed from it and then to rise up from the dead so that we can have life everlasting with him because he has conquered sin and death now we'll live with him forever. This good news now reorients our minds and our eyes to where now we can look out and say, from a place of humility, I'm not above any of you and you are not above any of us. We all come to the cross on level ground. That we all are deserving of wrath and condemnation, but God lavishly pours out grace. We are made in the image of God and so when we can look past just what is surface and see that, that we are valued. We're made in the image of God. He made us with this purpose of expressing to the world who he is. Then we all have great value, and that value has now been defined by God the Son dying for you. You were bought with a price, so therefore honor the Lord, glorify the Lord with your body. That was the cost of your life, was the life of the Son of God. How much worth do you have? That is where you see your worth. And so if the gospel informs us that that is our worth, now in humility, I can look out and I can value and honor others. I can have peace because there's peace inside. I can let that translate to peace outside. That internal peace becoming an external peace that I experience with you because I'm confident in what God says of me. He sees my heart, not just my circumstances, not just my appearance, but he knows my heart and he has made my heart whole again. He is the one who took the heart of stone in the language of Ezekiel and replaced it with a heart of flesh that now feels. He has done that. And my confidence is now, I can't boast in his presence like Paul said. I just boast of him, that he has done this. And so now I can stand tall, all five foot nine inches of me. Stand tall. And look at everyone with humility. Humility does not mean that we degrade ourselves. That means that we're informed of who we are and our worth by the gospel. And so, here's the invitation. Are you tired of people seeing you as nothing more than what you may first appear to be? When you look at your life, the decisions you've made, 
your successes, your failures, whatever it is, are you just tired of people seeing you and assuming that is you? When you know that you're more than that, then the invitation is come have a seat at the table. The host of this table is God, and he sees the heart. He sees beyond the masquerade. He sees you, exactly who you are, and in grace, he says, come. Do you feel like the only way to see yourself is as weak, as a failure, as one condemned? Then come sit with the God who died, with the world watching, thinking he just failed. What weakness? but instead conquered it and was actually exalted on a throne when he was lifted up on a cross. King over everything. There's no one like him. He has the power to make you truly free, to make you truly forgiven. He sees who you really are. He will bring you to life. But will you come to him? There's a seat for you at the table. And Christian, have you possibly realized that you're not actually sitting at the table? You just kind of hover around the table. You don't actually sit down and enjoy the feast at the table. You don't actually sit down and enjoy the one who has come to the table and set the table for us to sit with him, Jesus. Because you are so concerned about everyone else surrounding the table and who's gonna come. Are you so fixated on who is and is not at the table that you have forgotten the invitation was for you personally to just sit and enjoy the feast that he has prepared before you? So we must look at the way that we look at others and ask, is that right? You're on a good road to making it right if you will first see them as made in the image of God. They're just as valuable as you are. So fix your eyes on Jesus, sit down, and enjoy what's been set before us. We have more than we could ever need. So look around and invite others to this table. There's room, there's a seat at the table for you. Hospitality looks like realizing there is more to people than they look like. Hear that again. Hospitality looks like realizing there is more to people than they look like. Let's pursue peace and hospitality because God sees the heart. So let's follow suit. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your great love. Thank you that you do see beyond our outward appearance. God, you look at our hearts. And God, we confess that as you saw our hearts, you saw what they truly were, that they were dead and stone cold, feeling nothing because we were living in rebellion against you. And yet when we were your enemy, you loved us. You loved us so much that you died for us. And your spirit changes our hearts, brings us to life so we can have that rebirth, Jesus, that you talked about with Nicodemus. And that's something beyond our control because like the wind blows where it will, Spirit, you do that too. And so we give you all the credit that you're the one who brings us to life. And so we have no reason to boast except in you. God, help us to view others in that light, to be loving and gracious people, who see beyond what seems to be in contradiction to us. God, to just love lavishly as you have loved us. Help us, Father. We love you and we praise you because you are worthy of all of our praise. In Jesus' name.